Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrasli. In 2015, all 193 United Nations member states affirmed what are known as the UN Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 objectives on this ambitious agenda, and they aren't just targets for developing nations, therefore all nations, and the clock is ticking. They are, as the UN describes, a blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all. We need action from everyone everywhere. 17 sustainable development goals. They are a to-do list for people and planet and the blueprint for success. The target to meet them is 2030, 11 years from now. Poverty, growing inequality exists in all of our nations. New data shows that the SDGs are off track, not by a year or two, but by several decades. We are 193 young people representing billions more. According to the Social Progress Imperative, a nonprofit that publishes an annual report on the SDGs, the UN won't reach its goals until 2073. Where and why are the SDGs off track? Joining me today to discuss the reasons is Michael Green. Hello. Hi, Michael. It's Elmira. Oh, well. I'm very well. He is the CEO of the Social Progress Imperative. Michael, where are we reaching you today? Uh, I'm, in, I'm back in London. I was uh, in Munich last The organization night. has just released the Social Progress Index, tracking progress towards the Sustainable Development Goals. Michael, tell us about the Social Progress Index. It was launched in 2014 with the goal of measuring progress towards achieving what eventually became the Sustainable Development Goals. And from what I understand, the index measures the SDGs across three dimensions, basic human needs, well-being, and opportunity. Why did you think that was necessary? Yeah, well, so we started the Social Progress Index back in 2014, really looking to create a complement to GDP, a measure of social progress independent of economic variables, to measure the real quality of life of people in countries around the world. At that time, we knew that the SDGs were coming. And I think as we see they've turned out, the um, SDGs are in fact very complicated. You know, the 17 goals, the 169 targets, even more indicators underneath. So what we're really doing is using the Social Progress Index, which is fundamentally measuring pretty much the same concepts, as a way of getting a handle on the SDGs, as a way of measuring the total package of the SDGs and being able to sum that all up into a single number. Because, you know, if you want to start a fight between development economists, ask them whether the Millennium Development Goals were achieved. And people will argue about one versus five versus eight. So since with the SDGs, it's even worse with 17 goals. So what we're trying to do with Social Progress Index is give a, a sense of how that total package of, the, package of the SDGs are going and whether we're on track for 2030. Michael, tell us how the index is put together. What's the framework and methodology for tracking the SDGs? Okay, so Social Progress Index starts with a conceptual model that very much draws on you know, the established literature of people like Amartya Sen and Joe Stiglitz, etc., and it says a good society is one in which everyone has the basic needs of survival, essentially food, water, shelter, and safety. Secondly, does everyone have the um, building blocks of a better life, the foundations of well-being, education, access to information, health, and good quality environment? And thirdly, does everyone have opportunity measured in terms of rights, freedom of choice, inclusiveness, and access to advanced education? 
And then for each of those different components of the model, we go out and we find the best possible data. We've hunted down hundreds of indicators, sifted them out, chosen 51 careful indicators, put them together, weighted them carefully to produce an aggregate score on social progress. And then when we calibrate that against the SDG goals, a measure of progress against the SDGs themselves. And this year's index is just out. And the publication of that coincides with the annual UN General Assembly meeting in New York. Could you talk about some of the index's findings? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Social Progress Index has been running since 2014, and we've just had the 2019 index is just out. So we've got a number of years by which we can sort of look at progress. So what we've done is we've said, well, let's add up all the scores for all the countries of the world, weighted, of course, by population, and say, say, how is our world doing against the SDGs? If we look at our current rate of progress, project it forward, are we going to hit the 2030 targets or not? And the answer, I'm afraid to say, is not by 2030. Um, our projection is that on current trends, we're not going to hit the SDG targets until 2073. Why is that? Why is it so far off? That's 20, the difference between 2030 and 2073 is pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, one thing I should say is that um, you know, what we do find is that the world actually is progressing. Um, overall, the world has moved forward a bit and the majority of countries are improved over the last five or six years. But the pace isn't fast enough because the SDGs really are so ambitious. And in a sense, that's a good thing. I mean, the SDGs were a promise to the world that there was going to be a step change in their quality of life. So we should be looking through the SDGs for an acceleration of social progress. And that really hasn't happened yet. You know, a few countries are going backwards, only a minority, but most countries are not moving forward fast enough. And there are also areas where progress is just too slow, different aspects of social progress, different aspects of the SDGs where there are real problems. Michael, let's turn to the indicators or the countries that aren't making any progress and are letting us down. Which are they and why have they gone backwards? Okay, let's, there's, there's two ways of looking at this. The countries that are letting us down and the kind of issues that are letting us down. So we say we only see four out of 149 countries going backwards over the last five years. And those are South Sudan, which actually is the bottom of our rankings. Um, Nicaragua, which is going through a political crisis. But then two really big countries that matter, Brazil and, I'm sorry to say, the United States. So these are the, the four countries that have actually gone backwards in social progress, have got further away from the SDG targets over the last four or five years. As well as the countries that are going backwards, there's a number of other countries where progress is a bit sluggish. I think a lot of the some of the Western European G7 countries, UK, Germany, France, it's a bit sluggish. And then there are some sort of emerging econ economies uh, like the Philippines where there's some progress, but it just really isn't fast enough. So the decline of the United States was something that really stood out in, in the report. And it's actually been on the decline since 2014. Why is that? Yeah, when we started the Social Progress Index in 2014, what really jumped out was how badly the United States was doing. Um, compared to countries of similar GDP per capita, the U.S. was doing pretty badly. Uh, and at that stage, the U.S., I think, was ranked about 19th in the world. What we've seen since 2014 is the U.S. has carried on going backwards and is now ranked 26th in the world um, behind the Czech Republic and Estonia, which I think is just not where people expect the U.S. to be. 
So it's, and it seems to be a story about a sort of a long-term, this is not just about short-term politics, this is about long-term structural problems where the US is not getting to grips with issues like safety, which is not just homicides, it's also things like road safety. There's issues around the school system, the fact that the healthcare outcomes in the US, despite how much money is spent, are no better than Jordan. Um, there's environmental issues and there's really recently some issues are, are emerging around inclusiveness, the treatment of minorities, etc. So it's a pretty across the board, real sort of stagnation or decline for the US on social progress. And how does that influence progress on the SDGs globally? Well, big countries count for more when we're thinking about progress against the SDGs. So that's a, a big drag. And similarly, the fact that Brazil is going backwards is a big drag on the SDGs. I think there's nothing to way to look at this, though, is also looking at which issues um, we're making progress on and which ones we're not. And yeah, I think we have to say that there is some really great progress happening on things like access to advanced education and um, access to information. That's where the world's progressing fastest. But where the world's going backwards very, very clearly is around rights. Um, there's been a very clear drop in scores on rights. And indeed, the majority of countries have seen scores on rights go backwards over the last five years. And that's a big, big drag on the SDGs. Well, that seems contradictory to have gains in knowledge and information and then a regression in political rights and freedom. Um, what's going on there? Yeah, so um, access to information is going forward, and that's driven by mobile phones and the uh, the internet, etc. But there is also a drag on that that aspect of social progress in terms of media freedom. So even within that aspect of social progress, we are seeing a problem about declining media freedom. And then separately on rights, whether it's property rights for women or freedom of expression, freedom of religion, there we see globally a big decline. Let's turn to the positive, because the report does go into detail about countries that are making rapid progress. Could you shed light on where and why these countries are excelling? Yeah, it's. I mean, if we're thinking that the, the world isn't moving fast enough towards the SDGs because too many, especially big countries, are sort of doing okay but not well enough, then it's really important to look at the really successful countries that are improving at the pace that we want. And so our star performers are countries like Nepal, and that's improving on social progress at more than double the rate of, say, India or um, Nigeria. Similarly, Ethiopia is improving at more than double the pace of Nigeria. So these countries that are moving really fast are doing so in part because they're doing some of these things like getting more mobile phones, etc. right. But they're also making really substantive progress on things like, you know, hunger and uh, child mortality as well and water and sanitation. And we're seeing some quite big wins in those areas that those countries and others are actually doing. And I think what that's telling us is that the SDGs, you know, we shouldn't be dismayed. There's actually real progress is possible. The SDGs are possible if only more countries could grow at the kind of rate that we're seeing from Nepal and Ethiopia. So what can the United States and Brazil and the other countries that are not doing well learn from countries like Nepal and Ethiopia? Well, I think one thing is we see is that there's, there's countries that are very focused and there's a real political will behind the kind of agenda of improvement. 
I mean, as well as um, the, the, le- the more developing countries are improving quickly, I think also going to give a shout out for our top performing country, Norway, which, you know, it's tough at the top. It's harder to improve. But Norway has beaten uh, its competitors and is the top performing country because they have also improved quite a bit over the last few years. So it's looking to different case studies. And one thing we're trying to do with the Social Progress Index is actually help benchmark countries, see who your peers are, um, you know, comparing poor countries with poor countries and rich countries with rich countries, and seeing where your strengths and weaknesses are. Because fundamentally, most of the problems in our world have actually been solved, um, solved somewhere. And what we're not so good at is, is spreading that knowledge and scaling those solutions. So, Michael, the countries that are doing well, they seem to have a lot of room to grow. And, you know, arguably you can say that, you know, they can hit certain benchmarks. But then when you take a look at more developed countries like the United States, they're wealthier and they aren't making enough progress. How do you get countries like the United States to do better when they're not struggling to meet any particular benchmark? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. So definitely the countries that are improving the fastest are the ones who essentially are catching up. So they are, you know, fixing water and sanitation, you know, eliminating malaria or whatever, doing stuff that's been done elsewhere. And in social progress, as much as in economics, catch up is easier than being at the frontier. So the, so the, the richest countries have got a different set of challenges. Um, I should say that what we do find is, is they are strong and weak in different ways. So a country like Norway is at the top, but it's not necessarily best on everything. So even they can learn from each other. Um, and then for just the rich world, it's about also some of hitting tougher challenges. So they've already achieved delivering water and sanitation to everyone. That's a solved problem. But then building an inclusive society where there's tolerance for everyone is a harder, wicked problem. And since that's the responsibility of the rich world is to find out the solutions to, to, to those kind of problems, those challenging problems, and finding out solutions to things like environmental challenges and climate change, that's the sort of responsibility of those richest countries. And those are harder problems. So we will probably see richer countries moving less quickly than, uh, than emerging economies. Michael, you mentioned that in the Social Progress Index, one of the things that is happening is countries can measure themselves against their peers. How are they doing so, and how are they using that information? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Our motto is always is about index to action to impact. The data on its own isn't going to make a difference. So we work a lot with countries around the world through local partnerships. In We're working in Latin America, in Europe, in Asia, in North America as well. Um, we do a lot of work building very local social progress indices as well, because the more granular that you make that data, the more powerful it is and the more, uh, more representative peer groups you get. So very much what we're trying to use is use that common language of data that actually brings people together across sectors to actually have that conversation about what what really works. So you mentioned that there is more progress than there is either a stalling or a regression. And yet when I look at the headlines, you see um, populism is popular more than ever, and you see more countries electing strongman leaders. What accounts for that? I think the um, the rise of populism is part of this yeah this world phenomenon we've seen that really drove the creation of the social progress index, which was the sense that you know a paradigm has ended. It's the economy stupid doesn't work anymore. Um, people you know people have heard how economic growth was going to deliver for them, and then that world came to an end in the financial crisis. 
They've seen people worried about climate change. People are worried about um, the rising inequality. And people are looking for a new paradigm. And one of the things I find is I go around the world and I talk about social progress index, I talk about beyond GDP, and everyone gets it. And I think the rise of populism is part of that, is people looking for new solutions. Now, I think in our data, what we see sometimes is, is that, that there can be a rise in some of the indicators around tolerance can deteriorate before a populist is elected. Sometimes it's after a populist is elected. So I don't think it's kind of a simple relationship, but I would see that the rise of populism is about the world looking for new answers because that old paradigm that really dominated the world from the end of the Second World War through to the financial crisis really is broken. So you mentioned that the sustainable development goals are probably not going to be met until 2073. And that's nearly 55 years from now. The stated target to meet the SDGs is 2030. What can be done to close that gap? You know, look, I mean, the only thing in my calendar for 2073 is to be dead. Um, so I don't really want to wait that long until 2073. So something's got to be done. Um, and I think it's about a couple of things. I think one is the rich world has got to start taking them seriously. I mean, the SDGs were created for the whole planet. But on the whole, UN agreements like this have been designed to be done to poor countries by rich countries. And I think rich countries haven't quite got with the program and seen that the SDGs are for them. And I think what our data shows very clearly is that there are very few rich countries that are actually on track to achieve the SDGs themselves. So I think a good place to start would be for the rich world to get their own house in order. They're the closest to the SDGs. They've got the most resources. So they should definitely address that. Then I think secondly, I think it's about saying where are the, where are the really uh, easy wins? I think water and sanitation there's a huge potential there. It's the area where the world's really underperforming. It really should be doing better. And that really is a, a solved problem that we have to, for which we have to scale solutions. So I think we should be very careful about putting resources into those quick wins so we can get real progress in those areas. And then I think we have to say there are some really hard areas that we need to talk about more, especially these issues around rights. And sometimes there can be a reluctance to use the language of rights in the SDG conversation. And we've got to get over that. We've got to have a conversation about what needs to be done to turn the, this around. Because if we don't address the problems of uh, deteriorating rights around the world, we're going to miss the SDGs. And that's a critical conversation that has to happen. Michael, at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned that there's some debate about whether the Millennium Development Goals were successful. But when you take a look at the UN, they certainly hail it as a successful anti-poverty initiative. Why is meeting the SDGs a greater struggle? You know, I'm I'm one of the, I'm one of the believers who thinks that the the Millennium Development Goals were a huge achievement, and the Millennium Development Goals were ultimately about poverty, but they were also supposed to be about poverty widely defined, and it was the fact that they were then the other goals that articulated a wider sense of poverty, not just income but also maternal mortality, etc. And some of those weren't met. Makes some people say. Well, no, the poverty goal was met, but the rest of it wasn't. And I think that's very important for us when we're thinking about the sustainable development goals, because at least with the Millennium Development Goals, you, know, you knew it was about poverty defined in different ways. The sustainable Development Goals, it really is a moving target. Uh, I mean, there's this sort of language about no one left behind, but that means different things in different contexts. 
And for some people, they very much see the Sustainable Development Goals as being a refresh of the Millennium Development Goals. And it's the basic ones around hunger and poverty that matter the most. Um, and then there are others who see it as being all about climate change. And I think this is a challenge is there's not an, a unifying idea around the Sustainable Development Goals. And I think a risk of that is that we're going to end up narrowing our focus onto just one or two of the SDGs or allowing countries and donors to just do SDG a la carte and just pick out a few that interest them. And I really feel that's a missed opportunity because that's something important has been done in the idea of trying to create a comprehensive program for every country in the world. And that if we start cherry picking or narrowing them artificially, we're going to miss out on something very important. It's a shame that this is all articulated through 17 goals and 169 targets. And it's a shame it's called the Sustainable Development Goals. I can barely say it. Um, SDGs is even worse. As Bono has joked, it makes it sound like a sexually transmitted disease. So there's lots of problems with the brand. But the underlying project about a comprehensive vision for inclusive and sustainable growth for the world, I think is fantastic. But we've got to be careful about how we frame it. How would you frame it? I mean, I think uh, I wish I was a marketing genius who could come up with a, with the framing for it, and uh, then I wouldn't be doing this. I'd be doing something else, perhaps. Um, but ultimately, it's it's about the the balance of people and planet, and about those fundamental things that we want, which you know, really for ourselves, for our families, for our societies, we ultimately want to be safe, healthy, and free, and that's what we want for everyone, and that's what the SDGs are ultimately about in a sustainable wrapper. That's terrible. I shouldn't work in marketing. <laughs> Michael, we end each episode by asking our guests this question. What gives you hope? I, uh, I'm an optimist. Uh, well, I'm an optimist about the world, not because I'm inherently optimistic. I mean, I've, I've worked in government. You know, I'm a very pragmatic person. And, but I'm an optimist because it just seems to me, if we just stop doing some stupid things, we actually could make a huge amount of progress. So this isn't about solving wicked problems, having huge breakthroughs. If we just did stop doing some stupid stuff, we actually could make a huge amount of progress. And that's what makes me an optimist. Michael, thank you. Thank you so much. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Nunna.